0: It would be too simplified an explanation for the motivation of Adolf Hitler to simply state that he wanted conquest and power. Nazi Germany, including the lands to which its power reached, was to be a society unlike any other. Purged of those with attributes deemed undesirable in his new order, the new German people would be pure and united in their goal of achieving their country's destiny to become the greatest nation on earth. Technologically, militarily, scientifically, Germany was to be the envy of all, untouchable by the old foreign powers who would squabble for the scraps left in its wake as Hitler's hand as leader, the Fuhrer, stretched across the globe to every continent. At the heart of this new Germany would be its capital, Berlin, which was to be renamed Germania, would become the most developed and prosperous city, not just in the world, but in all of history, its magnificence leaving the famed capitals of empires of old, such as Rome and Athens, a mere shadow in comparison. And dominating this new super city would be the immense Grand Hall or Hall of the People, conceived of by Hitler, and designed by Albert Speer, this immense domed structure would dwarf any that was in existence at that time, aptly demonstrating Nazi Germany's power and capability. Being able to seat 180,000 Nazi German citizens, it would be 16 times larger than St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, whose design it aped and would be filled with devoted followers, all of whom would come to see the Fuhrer in person and hear him speak of the bright future for the Third Reich, a Reich which Hitler promised would last a 1,000 years. And yet, just 12 years after Hitler came to power, that dream of the greatest city in history was smashed under the tracks of Soviet T-34 tanks, the Nazi leadership having to recruit children and the elderly to try and stave off the Red Army that had encircled the city, which had already been battered by Allied bombing raids for five years, looking to deliver a death blow to Nazi tyranny. This is the story of the Battle for Berlin and the last stand of Adolf Hitler. Welcome to Wars of the World. In the waning moments of June 7th, 1940, the residents of the city of Berlin slumbered peacefully, going to bed with their minds ringing with news of the continued success of the German war machine, crushing the Allied powers that had so humiliated them a mere 20 years before with the much hated treaty of Versailles that ended the Great War. Poland had been cut in half and shared with Stalin as per an agreement that divided Europe into East and West allowing the two dictators to expand their borders without interference from the other. Britain and France, who had declared war on Germany in response, were battered and bruised, the former having just retreated from the beaches of Dunkirk, leaving behind all their equipment, while the latter was scrambling to try and save something of their nation, as defeat was now inevitable. It was a Friday night, and the revelry of the weekend would soon be beginning as it had done before the war, Only now, the citizens of Berlin celebrated the fact that they lived in a city that was possibly the most powerful on earth, with an empire that stretched from Eastern Europe to the Atlantic and into Scandinavia. Even then, it was obvious that their Fuhrer had his sights set even further afield, and with Germany's agreement with Stalin, Britain seemingly on the ropes, and the United States determined to stay out of the fighting, who could possibly stop them? And yet, as dreams of glory and conquest occupied the minds of young boys, whose Hitler youth uniforms sat folded neatly beside their beds, approaching the city that night was a reminder that no matter how impossible the odds, the oppression of the invader will always ignite the spark of freedom in even the most downtrodden of nations for chugging and sputtering its way through the German sky that night was a single French Navy Farman NC-223 Auxiliary Bomber dubbed the Jules Verne. Commanded by Captain Henry Dallier, he instructed his pilot, Henry Yonnet, to fly a path that would be perceived as though they were trying to land at Berlin's Tempelhof Airport, only to at the last moment fly over the field and head at low altitude in the direction of their targets, the nearby Siemens factory. Despite the wartime situation, the French crew were amazed to see the city lit up below like it was Christmas as they approached, without so much as a flare being fired at them. Approaching the target area, Dallier instructed his men to begin dropping their small bombs, while his flight mechanic and bombardier took to hurling incendiary bombs out of the passenger door. At such low altitude, the detonations of the eight 551-pound bombs were every bit as deadly to the lumbering old bomber as German gunners, but skill and a little bit of luck spared them the ignominy of being destroyed by their own weapons. The blasts and fires finally woke the sleepy German gunners as searchlights began pointing like luminescent fingers up into the sky followed by blasts from the anti-aircraft gunners, hoping to score a lucky hit in the endless black, but to no avail. Within an hour and a half, the French crew were back in Orly. French authorities tried to celebrate the raid, but the overwhelming sense of doom suppressed any propaganda value it might've had. In Berlin, the Nazi government quickly covered up the raid, claiming their gunners had participated in an anti-aircraft exercise, However, it would not be long before the truth of the matter became inescapable to the people of the great city. The truth was that the war had now come to them directly and this was only the start. Crucially, within just a few months of the symbolic raid by Captain Deliaire, the city would actually play a key role in the pivotal battle of Britain, albeit an unwitting one. As German bombers pounded British airfields with the aim of destroying the RAF, which would allow the German army to cross the English Channel unimpeded, a group of Luftwaffe bombers mistakenly hit London, despite the Fuhrer forbidding such attacks. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill ordered RAF bombers to retaliate against Berlin on August 25th, 1940. This was a raid that German propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels couldn't conceal and over the coming days, more would follow. An enraged Hitler thus ordered his bombers to switch from hitting British airfields and instead focus on British cities, allowing the RAF breathing room to reorganize and rebuild. This blunder on the part of Hitler went a long way to sparing the RAF and saving Britain, allowing the nation to act as the springboard for the eventual liberation of Europe in 1944. Berlin would become a regular target for Allied bombers, both for its industrial and organizational importance towards the war effort, as well as its symbolic value. However, British and Commonwealth bomber crews soon learned to fear visiting the city as it was afforded some of the densest defenses the German Luftwaffe had to offer. Then on August 9, 1941, RAF Bomber Command were left perplexed as to why German radio was claiming their aircraft had actually hit the city during the previous night when no RAF aircraft had targeted the capital. In actuality, the raid was the first carried out by the Soviet Union's Red Air Force, something that was unthinkable to Hitler, who viewed the Soviet people as inferior and incapable of such a feat. The Soviet Union would carry out a handful of raids until their bases were overrun by the advancing German army, but this would not be the last time Soviet aircraft would hit the city. Having joined the war effort in December 1941, the USAAF would build up its bomber fleets between 1942 and 44 in the UK, and then send them out in increasing strength on dangerous daylight raids. Flying against vital German infrastructure and bases, it would not be until March 6, 1944, that US bombers would visit the capital in strength, 612 being sent out, but German defenses claiming 69. Berlin would be visited more often by Allied bombers over the following 12 months, as the Germans found themselves retreating on all fronts from mid 1944, culminating in the largest raid on Hitler's capital on March 19, 1945. 1,329 U.S. bombers blasted the city, targeting armaments factories and lines of communication in preparation for the impending Soviet assault. Stalin wanted to be the one to take Hitler's capital. It was as simple as that. Given the betrayal of his previous 1939 agreement with the Führer, which he saw as a personal affront, and given how much the Soviets had suffered, Stalin felt it was only right that he should be remembered as the man who led his army into the city and captured Hitler dead or alive. It was more about his own ego and prestige than any veiled efforts to justify it with figures concerning Soviet losses to the Nazis, Soviet commanders often being deadlier than the Germans to the Red Army conscripts if things weren't proceeding as Stalin intended. However, in truth, he needn't have concerned himself with any notion of there being a race between the Eastern and Western allies to take Berlin. At the Potsdam Conference, it was agreed that the eastern portion of Germany, where Berlin was located, would be occupied by the Soviets after the war. And as such, Supreme Allied Commander in the West, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, lost all interest in sacrificing men and equipment to take Hitler's capital. If Stalin wanted to throw thousands of lives away just to say he was the one to take Berlin, which was now little more than ruins from years of bombing, then Eisenhower was going to let him. However, Stalin, who was still smarting from Hitler's betrayal and surprise attack, suspected that the Western allies wouldn't hold up their end of the agreement and that they would try to take and hold as much of Eastern Germany as possible if he didn't get there first. By taking Berlin and capturing or killing the German leadership, all remaining resistance would crumble and he could quickly move in to take the territory which he had been promised. Hoping to impress upon his own comrades the urgency he believed lay in taking the city, Stalin took the step of splitting the force he was assembling for the operation in two. One would be commanded by Marshal Gregory Zhukov in the center and the other by Marshal Ivan Konev in the south. His idea was to pit the two of them in a race to the Reichstag, which Stalin viewed as being akin to the Kremlin in Moscow, the winner not only being afforded the accolades, but also additional favor with him, something that in Stalin's paranoid world could mean the difference between life and death. Stalin knew the two commanders had a bitter rivalry with one another, and he felt this would be suitable motivation for them to bring a swift final victory. There was also the fact that both men had become popular with their respective forces and with the wider Soviet public, and in his mind, this made them potential threats to his authority. Thus, by having one of them fail, he was effectively eliminating a rival by pinning the blame on them. This was especially obvious for Zhukov, who had become aware of a secret investigation being conducted against him on Stalin's orders to dig up any dirt the dictator might use against him in the future. By early April, Stalin's commanders had amassed the greatest concentration of military firepower assembled against a single city, possibly in all of history. It comprised of, in the region of 2.3 million troops, including nearly 200,000 Polish communists, supported by over 7,000 aircraft, 6,000 tanks, and 41,600 artillery guns of various calibers. Upon reaching the outskirts of the city, The Soviets would attempt to encircle it, thus preventing Hitler from escaping or receiving reinforcements before slowly squeezing the life out of the city's defenders. Taking up their positions on the eastern side of the Oder River, the words onto the Reichstag began to fill the air, yelled out by officers and political commissioners alike to inspire the troops and remind them that this would be the final battle of their great patriotic war. Historians continue to debate the precise point at which the war was lost for Nazi Germany. Was it the Luftwaffe's failure to destroy the RAF in the Battle of Britain, thus allowing the island nation to act as a springboard for the D-Day invasion? Was it Hitler declaring war on the Soviet Union in 1941 against the advice of his generals, and then again declaring war on the United States after Pearl Harbor was attacked by Japan? Whichever point you may subscribe to, one thing is certain, that by the beginning of 1945, everyone in Germany knew the war was lost, with one notable exception, Hitler himself. Hitler had been forced to take up residence in the Führerbunker near the Reich Chancellery on January 16, 1945. Despite propaganda to the contrary, the Führer seldom spent any time in Berlin during the war, but from then on, he would live beneath the capital city as it was bombed into rubble, accompanied by his mistress, Eva Brown, his mental state slowly deteriorating as a result of stress, the onset of his Parkinson's disease, and a potent mixture of drugs given to him by his personal physicians. A big believer in German technical superiority, he clung to the belief that wonder weapons like the ME 262 jet fighter, the V2 ballistic missile, and the Maus super heavy tank would reverse Germany's fortunes but this belief slowly detached him from the reality of the situation, that the infrastructure to support such weapons was slowly being pummeled into dust by Allied bombers. Yet despite this hopelessness, surrender still didn't seem an option for the German leadership or even the German people. Hitler, Goering, Himmler, and many others all knew that to surrender was akin to committing suicide as they would no doubt be tried and executed for their crimes. As for the people living in Berlin, the realization that it was the Soviets who would be entering their city made them realize they would have to fight to the very last. Already, stories of Soviet atrocities in the occupied regions of Eastern Germany were filtering back to them, and for once, they were not the product of Joseph Goebbels' propaganda ministry. Stalin had told his men to take revenge on the German people for what the Wehrmacht had done in Soviet territory, resulting in orgies of violence, looting and rape against everyone from the elderly to children. Thus, despite the repeated bombing and eventual shelling of the city, Berlin's population actually swelled with an influx of refugees fleeing from the countryside as the city offered the only fortified positions left in the region, from the Führerbunker Hitler assumed overall command of the city's defense, but by April, his efforts to communicate via wireless and telephone were becoming increasingly difficult due to Allied interference. This resorted to the Nazi leader having to rely on messenger boys, some as young as 13 years old, to pass messages to his troops. While possessing less than a third of the strength of the Soviet force amassed against them, the Germans had been given plenty of time to conduct defensive possessions outside of the city with which to slow the Soviet assault when it finally came. Outside the city, commanding the Wehrmacht's Army Group Vistula was General Gotthard Heinrichi, a gifted tactician when it came to defensive planning. He correctly assumed that the main thrust after the Soviet Red Army had crossed the Oder would be against the Sea Heights, which Zhukov had labeled as the Gates of Berlin. But rather than try to hold them there, He instead planned an elaborate series of anti-tank ditches, minefields, and fortified positions with which to wear down the Soviet force as they inevitably withdrew to a second and third defensive line. He also had engineers release water from the nearby reservoir to flood the region and turn the ground into an impassable swamp for tanks. Additionally, Berlin's defenses were bolstered by the arrival of the German Second Army, which had previously been bottled up near Danzig, making a break for the city through an opening in the Soviet lines as they advanced to their starting position on the banks of the Oder. German armored units that had survived long enough to join in the defense of the city possessed a number of the war's best tanks, ranging from the competent Panzer IV up to the behemoth King Tigers and Panthers. Under ideal circumstances, these tanks would be more than enough to handle superior numbers of Soviet T-34s and even the heavy IS-2, but the over-engineered vehicles required heavy maintenance and a constant stream of spare parts, both of which were in increasingly short supply in these desperate times. However, as had happened on several occasions throughout the war, it would be Hitler himself who would prove one of the biggest obstacles facing even his most gifted commanders. Viewing the buildup from his bunker, the Führer believed that the Red Army troops amassing outside the city were nothing more than a decoy and that the real Soviet objective was Prague. Remembering the old words of Otto von Bismarck, that whoever controlled Prague controlled Europe, on April 5th, he dispatched four experienced panzer units south to protect the city much to the horror of Heinritzi, who had been relying on their inclusion in his plans. Despite the complexity and density of these preparations, few in the surviving German Wehrmacht believed it would do little more than delay the Soviet juggernauts bearing down on the capital city, some 56 miles west of the Silo Heights. Once through the line, there would be only sporadic German units standing in their path before they reached the city. Inside the city would be whoever escaped the Soviet tidal wave, plus members of both the Luftwaffe and German Navy, who were now largely defunct in their intended services, given the losses in aircraft and seafaring vessels. Helping them were some 60,000 men of the Volkssturm, a militia group founded in late 1944, as the war became desperate for the Nazis. Filling the ranks of the Volksturm were physically fit men aged between 16 and 60 who were not already serving in the military, be they too young or old, or possessing skills needed on the home front. These men were arranged into 92 battalions within Berlin, although only about one in three actually had any weapons. These being deployed to the outer areas of the city while the remainder occupied the inner areas where they were expected to use knives, clubs, and other improvised weapons against the Soviets. Led by local Nazi officials who tried to instill a degree of fanaticism in their ranks to make them fight for their last breath, many had already surrendered to the despair of knowing that whether they fight or not, they would almost certainly be killed at the hands of the Soviets, so they may as well try to take as many out with them as they could. However, the German capital was not only defended by its native peoples. An often overlooked factor in the story is the participation of numerous pro-Nazi troops from Europe who couldn't hope to return to their home countries that had now been liberated without the fear of trial and most likely execution. Among others, there was a battalion of the 1st Latvian Division of the SS, the Danes, Swedes, Norwegians, and the Dutch from the SS Volunteer Panzergrenadier Division Nordland, as well as the French from the 33rd Waffen Grenadier Division of the SS Charlemagne. Additionally, the defenders also include several hundred Spaniards, who, after the withdrawal of the Blue Division in 1943, a staunchly anti-communist volunteer unit from Spain serving within the Wehrmacht on the Eastern Front, had decided to stay and continue the fight against the Soviet Union. One of the more notorious non-German units serving west of the Oder was the British Free Corps, a small unit of the SS comprised of a handful of British prisoners of war who were convinced to join the SS to fight the Soviet Union. It is disputed just what role these men played in the defense of Berlin. Lacking any real strength or useful special skills, most German commanders wanted nothing to do with them and they were soon marching westward to surrender to the Western allies where they would go either into hiding or face trial by their fellow countrymen. Knowing that Stalin was watching him, Zhukov made his move in the pre-dawn hours of April 16th. The Russian military has long decreed that artillery is the god of war, and he clearly invoked this deity that day by opening the offensive with one of the largest artillery barrages in history. Under his command, the First Belarusian Front possessed 908,000 men, and 3,155 armoured vehicles, while rival Konyev's Ukrainian front protected his south flank, and Konstantin Rokossovsky's second Belarusian front guarded the north. For half an hour, the ground ahead of the Soviet troops erupted in towers of dirt and stone hurled into the air before the Soviet columns began advancing outwards. However, the spectacular display of Soviet firepower disguised the reality that much of Heinrich's defenders had already withdrawn. The Germans had, leading up to the offensive, taken a Russian prisoner who informed them of enough of Zhukov's plan to lead Heinrichi to prepare his defenses and reposition some of his force. Right from the off, the Soviet advance struggled to gain traction. The quagmire created by a combination of the spring thaw, the German flooding, and Zhukov's own barrage saw vehicles and troops slowed to a crawl or stuck in traffic jams on some of the clearer routes making them easy pickings for German tanks, anti-tank guns, and artillery of the German 9th Army. Frustrated, Zhukov decided to send his reserves in early, most likely being alarmed by news of the progress of his rivals in the South, who were now beginning to outpace him. The advance on the heights thus began to resemble a World War II take on the typical World War I scene. Soviet troops were dying in the mud, with the furthest advances being only around five miles, or eight kilometers from their starting point by the day's end, and the German second and third defensive lines still lay before them. Having reported to Stalin that things were not proceeding as planned, Zhukov ordered his troops to press on the next day. He having been warned by the Soviet Union's supreme ruler that he intended to let Konev strike north into Berlin if the situation didn't change soon, thus winning the race between them, Indeed, Konev's first Ukrainian front was by the 17th, threatening to destroy the German's southern flank. This forced Heinrichi to order a withdrawal from the second line, lest he risked his men becoming enveloped and ground down into oblivion with no hope of escape. On April 18th, both Konev and Zhukov threw their men at the German defenders once again, but progress remained slow despite Rokossovsky's forces in the north managing a breakout, bypassing the Silo Heights before engaging with Heinrichi's few reserve forces. Again, barely a couple of miles of ground had been taken in some places while the land was littered with thousands of Soviet dead. Finally, on April 19th, the German line simply couldn't take any more. Despite their superlative performance, German armored units were becoming overwhelmed by superior numbers of Soviet armor that just kept coming no matter how many Red Army tanks they destroyed. Soon their own vehicles were breaking down or running out of fuel. And despite having suffered over 30,000 dead, like a tidal wave, the Red Army couldn't be stopped and they overran the last German defensive line. The gates to Berlin were open. All that lay between the Red Army and the German capital, just 56 miles away, were sporadic pockets of German resistance left behind by the surviving main force as they made their way to the capital. The ninth army becoming encircled as they attempted to flee to the ruined city where the war in Europe against the Nazi tyranny was about to reach its climax. Despite the devastation wrought upon the city, cracking Berlin was going to be no easy feat for the Red Army. In fact, while defences were erected in the city by the defenders, particularly around the Reichstag and the Reich Chancellery Building, under which was the Fuhrer Bunker, the bombing had the unintended side effect of blocking roads needed for tanks with craters and rubble, while at the same time turning buildings into ideal hiding locations for ambushes. Ironically, it was almost the reverse of the situation at Stalingrad over two years earlier. The only difference being that the Soviets had the strength in manpower and didn't have to contend with a brutal winter. Pursuing the survivors of the German forces towards the city on April 20th, Soviet artillery was finally in range of the capital. The symbolism was not lost on the Soviets for April 20th was no ordinary day. It was Adolf Hitler's birthday. As the shells began hitting the outskirts of the suburbs north of the city, Hermann Göring, the flamboyant head of the Luftwaffe, repurposed several military trucks to save some of the precious artwork he had accumulated during the war, before destroying his home to prevent it from falling into Soviet hands. He then travelled to the Fuhrerbunker to wish Hitler a happy birthday. Traveling through the streets, Göring observed the preparations being made by able-bodied citizens, ranging from the young and elderly to even prisoners and slave laborers, as Hitler instituted Operation Clausewitz, a comprehensive 33-page plan for trying to defend his capital from what was an inevitable collapse. Many of those involved in the construction of barricades or training with the few weapons available found it hard to motivate themselves as they slowly gave in to despair. Even fewer had confidence in the preparations they were engaged in, with a not so funny joke among them being that it would take the Soviets two hours and 15 minutes to capture the city, 15 minutes to break through the barricades and two hours to stop laughing at them. Many of Hitler's upper echelons met with him that day to wish him a happy birthday and pledge their allegiance, and yet many of them were already planning their escape. Göring was heading to his estate at ober Salzburg, where he claimed he was going to organize resistance movements in Bavaria, while Heinrich Himmler the man who led his SS in carrying out some of the most heinous acts of the Holocaust, had secretly met with members of the World Jewish Congress to strike a deal he hoped might save himself and many Nazis based on the release of Jewish prisoners still in German hands. Over the coming days, both men would fall out of favor with Hitler, who accused them of treason when their loyalty was needed most. As his inner circle stepped away from him, many for the last time, In the afternoon, he presented a number of medals to members of the Hitler Youth who had shown great courage in combat with the Soviets, many wearing ill-fitting uniforms and even hold uniforms after they'd been taken from the dead. It was his last public engagement. Later that afternoon, he was informed that the Soviets were expected to encircle the city within 24 hours. The next morning, Hitler ordered the Luftwaffe to attack Soviet artillery in the east, which was devastating much of the Germans' preparations. The surviving aircraft were effectively little more than a bee sting on the Soviets, who continued pounding the city with shells with enormous ferocity. In the south, Konev's troops overran the Wehrmacht command post at zosen forcing them to relocate to near Potsdam, Later that day, 30,000 prisoners were moved from the Sachsenhausen concentration camp away from the Soviet advance to conceal what had happened there. Emaciated from their captivity, many collapsed on what was a death march, and if they didn't die from exhaustion, they were killed by their guards. Hitler, meanwhile, was laboring under the belief that if he could muster a counterattack at this 11th hour, he could turn back the tide in his favor telling SS-Obergruppenführer Felix Steiner, every available man between Berlin and the Baltic Sea up to Stettin and Hamburg is to be drawn into this attack I have ordered. You will see Steiner, you will see. The Russians will suffer their greatest defeat. It was pure fantasy, nothing more than the ramblings of a desperate man who had lost touch with reality. Over the following 48 hours, more of the eastern boundary of the city fell to Konev and Zhukov. In a bizarre turn, the people of Berlin were now praying that they were invaded from the sky by paratroopers from the Western Allies, as rumors persisted that in some places, American and Soviet troops had started fighting each other and that World War II would end with the start of World War III between the big three powers that were about to defeat them. Instead, however, Stalin had ramped up the competition between his two commanders by changing the planned demarcation line between them to the Anhalter Bahnhof, the diplomatic station near the Wilhelmstrasse government quarter. The finish line was set to be the Reichstag itself, which Stalin viewed as the seat of Nazi power, when in fact, it was the Reich Chancellery building, the Reichstag going largely unused since a fire gutted it in 1933. This change helped even the balance between the two of them, which at the time had been favoring Zukov. However, already the Soviets were learning how fanatical the defenders were as they faced increasingly stiff competition. Anti-aircraft guns, including the famed 88 mm, which was the basis for the Tiger I tank's formidable gun, housed in three fortified towers around the city, were repurposed in the anti-tank role and did tremendous damage to the Soviet tank columns, which often became bottlenecked in narrow streets. Even the awesome IS-2 heavy tanks suffered badly, being unable to maneuver in these narrow streets, forcing them into lines where the defenders could focus their fire on the lead vehicles, which, once destroyed, became roadblocks to their comrades. Added to this were the daring ambushes laid by the Volkstrum and Hitler youth members equipped with personal anti-tank weapons. Such was the speed at which both Soviet commanders wanted to advance in order to win the race. Many tanks entered the city without adequate infantry support to guard against such ambushes and paid heavily it. As had been proven time and time again in urban battles throughout the war and since, tanks often struggled in street fighting because they couldn't elevate their guns on the upper floors of tall buildings or even rotate their turrets in some of the narrowest streets. At this point, the Soviet Navy became embroiled in the fight. Between April 23rd and the 25th, Small boats of the Soviet Navy's Dnieper flotilla transported more than 16,000 soldiers and 100 pieces of artillery across the Spree River to the combat area. These missions were fraught with peril as the boats took heavy fire and had to contend with obstacles floated in their path by the Germans. The Red Air Force II stepped up its operations to support the growing encirclement of the city. The days of 1941, when it operated with incompetent leadership, hopelessly obsolete aircraft and outdated tactics were over. The 1945 Red Air Force was a vast improvement with far more capable aircraft and a core of battle-tested commanders utilizing proven tactics while at the same time taking full advantage of its enormous numerical advantage. They carried out intense close air support missions using tough ground attack aircraft and bombed many of the barricades and fortified positions Hitler had erected under Klausowicz. At midday on April 25th, two columns of Soviet troops converged towards one another in the town of Ketzin, northwest of the city. One belonged to Zhukov's first Belarusian front, the other to Konev's first Ukrainian. The encirclement was complete. Over the previous weeks, thousands of Nazi Party members and ordinary citizens of the city had scrambled for papers to give them permission from the Fuhrerbunker to leave the city without being shot for desertion. Now, there was no escape. Just over an hour later, Konev's forces symbolically made contact with US troops, signaling the closing of the Allied noose around Hitler's neck. But it was not over yet. The race was still very much on between the two Soviet commanders. Two American journalists, Andrew Tully of the Boston Traveler and Virginia Irwin of the St. Louis Post, decided to take the opportunity to report on events in Berlin and drove a Jeep to the outskirts of the city, where they drank vodka and ate traditional Russian pastries with Soviet officers inside the Berlin perimeter, much to the fury of their respective governments. Inside Berlin, the defenders must have felt more isolated than ever, as not only were they encircled, but the main Nazi radio station, Deutschlandsender, finally went silent after days of intermittent broadcasts. The world was seemingly abandoning them to their fate. In the Führer bunker, alcoholism, drug abuse, and debauchery took hold amongst many residents as they fought to stave off, giving in to their impending doom. Outside the bunker, starvation was becoming as big a threat as the enemy. 16-year-old Armin Lehmann of the Hitler Youth served as a messenger, an extraordinarily dangerous assignment giving the shelling, bombing, and constant threat of Soviet snipers in the city when he observed two men cutting up a live horse for food, the desperate men oblivious to the creature's cries of pain. Directing the fight, the Fuhrer discovered that good news was becoming increasingly few and far between after April 27th. From then on, he was simply watching the map displaying the parts of the city still in his control slowly dwindle, and the icons displaying the Red Army's troops get closer and closer to his bunker added to this was news that now his orders were beginning to be ignored in the field he had already lashed out against his once beloved ss for failing him this left his already strained drug-ridden mind asking the question just who was he the fuhrer the leader of now on april 28th the german army tried one last ditch effort to break the encirclement of berlin Outside of the city, General Venk's 20th Corps attacked the Soviet line, but was beaten back, leaving the city to its fate. For the first time, even Hitler admitted what everyone else of sound mind had realized months earlier. The Nazis had lost the war. However, in the parts of the city already occupied by the Red Army, a new problem emerged for its leaders. Many of its soldiers had themselves taken to alcoholism as well as looting, murder, and the mass rape of German women and girls. This was spurred on by large numbers of prisoners being released from German captivity, pressed into frontline service to shore up numbers in the increasingly bloodied Soviet forces, their thirst for revenge seemingly unquenchable. In many areas, discipline had broken down as even their own officers began to undertake such horrific acts against the civilian population. But punishments were seldom issued for committing these crimes, rather only if they interfered in their duties and the race for the Reichstag. As for said race, Stalin had intervened yet again and decided that Zhukov would be the winner. Stalin redirected Konev and the men of the First Ukrainian Front to Savinhiplatz in the Western Sector and tasked him with clearing the remaining areas of the city beyond Tiergarten in central Berlin. As a sort of consolation prize, Konev was told his men would be tasked with taking Prague. While Stalin may have given him the opportunity for glory, Zhukov knew he could still fail in his leader's eyes if he did not seize the prize of the Reichstag quickly enough, Assaulting the building would be his third shock army, but standing in its way was the River Spree and the massive stone bridge linking both sides of the river was barricaded at either end, mined for demolition and strewn with barbed wire and other obstacles. To the south of the bridge were buildings of the diplomatic quarter and the Ministry of the Interior protected by a series of trenches, gun emplacements and minefields. The windows in the Reichstag itself offered a commanding view of the area, even with many of them being bricked up, save for small gun ports. Shortly after midnight in the early hours of April 29th, red army troops fired on an armored car they spotted driving through the city near the Reichstag, but they failed to stop it. At the wheel of the car was Michael Wagner, a lawyer who was on a special assignment for the Führer, to bring from his law firm the paperwork necessary to make his marriage to Eva Braun legal. This marriage was a last gesture of appreciation by Hitler to the woman who had stood by him for so long, literally to the bitter end. All knew it would be a short marriage in life, at least for those who had decided not to take their chances and try to escape, or were now preparing how they would end it all before the Red Army took the chancellery above them with them now being in sniper range of the grand building that was being blown, blasted, and shot into oblivion. As Hitler and Eva took their wedding vows, Soviet armor attempted to punch through the barricades on the bridge crossing the spree. The move was made without the usual pre-attack artillery barrage in the hope of catching the Germans off guard, but this failed as German mortar crews, expecting the assault, had already zeroed in on the bridge and begun raining destruction onto the tanks. Later, the Soviets made a second attempt to cross the bridge, this time using much heavier and better armored tanks. SS anti-tank guns and anti-aircraft guns from the nearby Flak Tower again did their deadly work, and the bridge quickly became a junkyard for Soviet armor. While the Red Army was able to secure it for a short time, they were eventually beaten back by the SS and the sudden arrival of members of the tough 9th German Parachute Division who were retreating from their previous position at the Lurter Railway Station. At 10 hundred hours, Hitler Youth Messengers were reporting to the Führerbunker that Soviet tanks were now less than half a kilometer away and 30 minutes after that, a balloon being used to relay radio signals was shot down the Führerbunker was now out of radio contact with the outside world for good. The Germans now only held a stretch of the center of the city, which in some areas was barely a mile wide and defended by around 30,000 survivors of its initial force. Throughout the day, Soviet infantry continued advancing, succeeding in reaching the Gestapo headquarters and the police presidium all of which saw some of the most bitter room-to-room combat, the combatants often being close enough to resort to bayonets. During the day's combat, the standard bearer of the 220th Guards Rifle Regiment, Sergeant Nikolai Masalov, heard the crying of a three-year-old German girl on the opposite side of the Landwehr Canal. Under covering fire from his comrades, he succeeded in reaching the little girl who was lying next to her dead mother and took her away from the fighting. His deed would later be immortalized in a giant statue of a Soviet soldier saving a child in the Soviet war memorial in the city's Treptower Park. Elsewhere in the city, a single dug-in Tiger tank was wrecking havoc with Soviet armor trying to squeeze across the Potsdamer Bridge. Some of the Soviet troops therefore came up with the idea to cover the protective coating of the next tank to attempt to cross with oil and smoke canisters. Thus, When it inevitably burst into flames on the bridge, the Germans assumed it had been disabled, paying little attention to it rolling forwards towards them and into their fortifications. Only then did they realize their mistake, whereupon the tank caused mayhem, distracting the Germans long enough for more Soviet armor to cross unopposed and secure the opposite side. The next morning, Hitler was informed that the battle for the city had only hours left to it. German forces were running out of everything, weapons, ammunition, food, and bodies. Hitler therefore allowed members of his inner circle to finally leave, if they so wished, and take their chances in the city. But just where any of them could go for safety was anyone's guess. Leading up to and during the battle for the city, many residents or soldiers fearing their fate at the hands of the Soviets gave in to despair. While exact figures can never be known, at least 4,000 people are known to have committed suicide in the city in April of 1945. At 1,530 hours on April 30th, there were two more to add to this number, Adolf Hitler and his wife. Dying at his own hands in one last defiant act against the world he had so much disdain and hatred for, Hitler would deny the world a true sense that he had faced justice for the horror he unleashed. In the world above, the push towards the Reichstag continued as Zhukov oversaw three assaults on the building throughout the morning, all of which were beaten back. Puzzlingly, either due to an error in communications or as part of an effort to appease the impatient Stalin, Zhukov sent a message to Moscow that read, units of the Third Shock Army, having broken the resistance of the enemy, have captured the Reichstag and hoisted our Soviet flag on it today, April 30th, 1945, at 1,425 hours. It was completely untrue as Soviets were still fighting in the square outside and only served to add more pressure on him and his men to make it true as quickly as possible. Scores of men were thrown at the building throughout the afternoon in an effort to clear it of its defenders. Finally, At around 2,250 hours, Sergeants Yegorov and Kantaria of the Special Banner Party with Red Banner No. 5 managed to fight their way to the rear of the building and ascended a staircase to the roof, wedging the Soviet flag into a crevice. However, even then, the building had not been fully captured and the flag was actually taken down by Germans within a few hours as fighting continued over the next day. That next day was May 1st, May Day, and one of the most important days in the Soviet calendar. It was the day the world learned that Hitler was dead. While efforts were made between the remaining defenders and the Soviets to negotiate a ceasefire, fighting continued on sporadically, but an unusual atmosphere had come over many in the almost victorious force. Knowing the Fuhrer was dead and that the war had hours left, few Soviet soldiers wanted to become the last casualties of war on the very eve of their greatest triumph. Efforts to clear pockets of resistance fizzled out, save for artillery or airstrikes, while they continued their orgy of looting and rape. Sergeant Masalov's moral courage proving to be the exception amongst the victors. Soldiers from various different Soviet units did however manage to reach the famed Brandenburg Gate, unfurling a red banner, which was then placed in a hole in one of the bronze horses atop the monument. In the Bunker of the Damned, more suicides followed, the most horrific probably being that of Propaganda Minister Joseph Goebbels and his family. His wife, Magda, who once rivaled even Eva Braun for the Fuhrer's affection, poisoned their six children before the two of them committed suicide in the gardens of the Reich Chancellery Building. At around 20, 30 hours on May 2nd, 1945, Zhukov's first Belarusian front and Konev's first Ukrainian finally met once again at their first inter-front boundary on Savinhi Platz, destroying a panzer division that had been holding ground there before its failed breakout attempt the previous night. The fight was all but over and it was left to the Berlin Defense Area Commander, General Helmut Wielding, to issue the surrender. Meeting with senior officers from the 8th Guards Army headquarters, he composed a formal order that read, on the 30th of April, the Führer, to whom we had all sworn an oath of allegiance, forsook us by committing suicide. Faithful to the Führer, you German soldiers were prepared to continue the battle for Berlin, even though your ammunition was running out and the general situation made further resistance senseless. I now order all resistance to cease immediately. Every hour you go on fighting adds to the terrible suffering of the Berlin population and our wounded. In agreement with the high command of the Soviet forces, I call on you to stop fighting forthwith. Hostiles officially ceased at 1,300 hours, but Soviet artillery continued hitting pockets of defenders until 1,500 hours, while the last organized German resistance subsided at 1,700 hours. Nazi Berlin was no more. Instead, its bomb-blasted streets, ruined houses, gutted historical buildings, and dug up parks were now draped in the banners and flags of the Soviet Union, in blood red. The end of the battle did not spell an end to the suffering for the survivors in the city. In Berlin, and indeed across Soviet-occupied Germany, Women continued to fear for their lives as mass rape took place on a scale not seen since medieval times. Even Soviet war correspondents were appalled at the scenes they witnessed, but were often censored to preserve the image of the Soviet heroes who took Berlin amongst the people back home. Some reports claimed that one woman could be violated as many as 70 times in a day, if they were held in captivity by their attackers. And as many as 200,000 German women were said to have died from physical abuse, murder, or suicide between January and August 1945 related to sexual assault. Any German who interfered was killed. Despite the efforts to censor the reports, many Soviet soldiers were open about their revenge on their German victims. One British journalist reported that after the battle, a Soviet major said to him, our fellows were so sex starved that they often raped old women of 60, 70, or even 80, much to these grandmothers surprise, if not downright delight. While Soviet authorities soon wrestled back control of their men, it was not unheard of for Soviet officers to continue roaming the streets at night in Jeeps and cars with a small entourage looking for potential victims as late as 1948. While Berlin had fallen, the war in Europe continued until May 8th. Paradoxically, as Zhukov's men were storming the capital of the Third Reich, German troops still occupied land in the Soviet Union. Up to a quarter of a million Nazi and anti-Soviet troops were surrounded in the so-called Korland Pocket in Western Latvia, then part of the Soviet Union, It jokingly became known to Soviet troops as a camp of armed prisoners of war since they could not leave, but they refused to lay down their weapons. The group finally capitulated on May 10th. However, even then, a small number who knew they would be tortured and killed by the Soviets continued waging a guerrilla war against the Red Armies for months afterwards. Mirroring Germany itself, Berlin would be divided into zones occupied by the victorious allies, despite the city lying within Soviet-occupied Eastern Germany. This was the source of much tension between Stalin and his former allies in the post-war years, leading him to close off all land routes to the city in June of 1948. In order to feed the citizens in the Western zone, a massive airlift operation was undertaken by the Western allies, where once their planes brought death upon the city's inhabitants, now they brought life. The Berlin Airlift, as it became known, would signal the start of a new chapter in history, the Cold War, and it began over the ashes of a city that was once at the center of the most destructive conflict in history. This is Wars of the World.